Hey guys, um, grab your Bibles and let's take a look uh, once again at Luke 15. But before uh, I get to that and before I get to uh, read my text, uh, today, by the way, there's a new members class this afternoon and I, I hope you'll come snoop around some and see if God is uh, leading you here. But, but today is, uh, is what's called Life Sunday. It's a day that, uh, that we who oppose abortion set aside to, uh, to groan. Uh, over 55 to 57 million babies, unborn babies, that have been killed since Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade. Um, I, I, somebody sent me an email this week about, uh, oh, I don't know, I forget what it was, the 78, something like that, 78 abortion clinics have been closed, and, and another one has been closed, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, you know, I would rejoice if we could close them all, every one of them. And um, I guess we're, the way that we do that now is, uh, is by law, by changing the laws. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, it seems to me there's a better way. Um, and it's, uh, it's in our hands. I guess we have to um, plead for new laws. But what would be better is if the Christian church would get off of her uh, her hiney and broadcast the gospel in such a way that God would use us to change hearts instead of changing laws. Um, <clears throat> we have a, a group here at Gracie Van. It's, you know, they're called MITs, uh, uh, Ministry Initiative Teams, that's called the Life Team, and they kind of keep us abreast of all that's going on, and, and they're, they're specifically designed to fight abortion. But the guy that runs that, Gary Bynum, one of our elders, is, uh, gave me some things to, that I, might, I would consider or that, that I can maybe say um, in this announcement. I want to read you what he said. Okay, um, he says, I long for the day when you might confidently announce from the pulpit, A, if any member of this church finds themselves in a pregnancy situation so difficult that you would consider abortion, we love you, we want to help you, and we have resources to share with you. B, that being said, if you cannot care for this child, we will take it. We as your covenant family will take responsibility for it and guarantee a loving Christian home. I long for the day when you might confidently announce from the pulpit. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about confidently, but I can announce this. If any member of this church finds themselves in a pregnancy situation so difficult that you would consider abortion, we love you, we want to help you, and we have resources to share with you. But that being said, if you cannot care for this child, we will take it. As your covenant family, we take responsibility for it and guarantee you a loving Christian home in which it will be placed. It seems to me, ladies and gentlemen, that the, the better approach is the broadcast of the gospel and adoption. Not law, um, <laughs> you can change the laws all you want, guys, and it's not going to change people's uh, human inclinations. Uh, but the gospel does. Um, I remember Jim Kennedy saying that um, Jesus didn't go down to the ghetto 
and uh, preach the gospel. What he did is that he went down in the ghetto and he changed men's hearts and they walked out of the ghetto themselves. <laughs> um, so um, that's kind of a two-pronged approach. That is uh, the broadcast of the gospel and adoption. Gang, uh, I know this is sensitive. If, you, um, if there's something going on that you don't want anybody to know, you know we have locked jaws in, in our offices. Um, we would love to help, and we offer you that now. But uh, if not, then join us as we attempt to uh, close every abortion clinic in America. <laughs> um, and we'll see just how that goes. All right, guys, um, I hope your Bibles are open at um, Luke 15. I'm going to read you uh, the, the second half of the parable of the prodigal son. We have spent uh, five weeks on the first half. We're now ready for the second half, which begins in verse 25, and, and I'll read through the, to the end of the chapter. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God it endures forever. Guys, um, perhaps, perhaps you'll recall that when we, we started our, our push through the, um, this last parable in the series on the parables, the parable of the prodigal son, we, we started back in late November. But in the, the, the first sermon on this parable, this, this uh, most prized and most famous of parables, um, I, I started by giving you two introductory or call them foundational principles. Two things that I wanted you to know as we started. <clears throat> the first one was this. This parable, the parable of the prodigal son, is not about the prodigal son. It's not about his brother The parable is about the man. If you'll notice in verse 11, the parable starts like this. It says, there was a man. 
It doesn't say there was a boy who had a brother and a father, or there was two boys who had a father. Or It doesn't start like that. The parable opens with, there was a man. Because this parable is about him. It's about that man. And, and I have sought to develop that idea over the first five sermons on this parable, um, showing you that, that the focus is the beauty of this man. That was the first introductory principle. The other one the, the, that I shared with you, the first sermon in this series, <clears throat> is that this parable was pointed at the Pharisees. You'll recall, I hope, the chapter, Luke 15, opens in verses 1 and 2, It opens with the Pharisees criticizing Jesus for receiving sinners and eating with them or welcoming sinners and eating with them. So with that complaint in mind, Jesus tells his parable. With with those people complaining like that in his mind, he tells this parable. Um, the first half of this parable, um, the 11 through 24, is about the complaint. That complaint is, well, what's the matter with him? I mean, he receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus replies very emphatically. Um, his reply is in essence this. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I sure do receive sinners and eat with him. And, and, and not only that, I run down the road to, um, to, to, to welcome them home. And, and, and when I get to them, I throw a party. And, and, and everybody who is in attendance at that party that I throw is celebrating the extremes to which I have gone to restore life to the dead. Oh, and by the way, you also ought to know, I also touch lepers. How about that? So the, the first half of this parable is about that complaint. Now we come to the second half of the parable. And the second half of the parable is about the complainers. The Pharisees. Now guys, it's very important that you remember who the Pharisees are. The, the, the Pharisees was the religious crowd, the church-going crowd. The, um, the religious insider, they were the, uh, you know, the self-righteous bunch, the, uh, the rule keepers. Um, and to address that crowd, Jesus employs a, a, a figure, the elder brother, to, to, um, to address the complainer's 
the Pharisees. He creates this image of the elder brother. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, it is abject genius. The elder brother, he's the one that refuses to come to the party. I'm not coming to your party. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be a part of that. He, re- he refuses to go in, and, he, and he's angry. And uh, he's sending out in that field, you know, pouting. Uh, that, that, that's who the, the elder brother is. While everybody else is, is having themselves a ball at this, um, at this party that Jesus, uh, that, that, that the father, that the man is throwing, the elder brother is standing out in the field, you know, sulking. Um, he, he doesn't, he doesn't um, approve of a, of a father who acts like this. I mean, um, having um, unclean people uh, who, um, who are, are included in the, in the family, um, well, well, that's just not acceptable to him. I mean, why you are, um, you might end up with some, um, some adulterers or some um, alcoholics or some uh, thieves right in this house standing next to nice, clean people like me. Uh, this, is not the, this is not the way it's supposed to work. I, I, I don't like it that you, um, that you admit all these people into your house who are, uh, who are dirty. Guys, do you see the point? The, the point that Jesus is making in this, this, really the whole parable, but the point with the elder brother is that the elder brother is just not comfortable with grace. Because, you see, grace means that some people are going to get something that they didn't earn, or that they didn't deserve, or that they didn't work for. And that's not how this is supposed to work, according to elder brothers. The only religion that, that, that he knows anything out of is, is that old-fashioned one, you know, the one that you earn everything. So these, these elder brother types, they spend their lives, often in churches, earning it, or at least trying to. And um, maybe, maybe you've noticed this in this parable. But did you notice that the parable never calls either brother, it never calls one of them good and one of them bad. Both of them. Both of them are distanced from the father. Even though the, the, the elder brother lives closer, the elder brother, you know, stayed at the house, and yet, 
The father, the father has to go out. Did you notice that in verse 8? Excuse me, 28. The father has to go out. He has to go out for both of them. They're both distanced from him. And so he has to go out and get both of them because there's a distance between him and them. You know, guys, I I have said repeatedly that, that sin is not so much doing bad things as it is a distance. A distance from the Father. Or if I could say that just differently. When you're distant from the Father, you begin to to concoct ways of saving yourself. One method is to throw off all the rules. Another method is to keep them. You see, the first method, that is throwing off all the rules, is illustrated in the, in the prodigal son. The other method of trying to save myself by keeping the rules is illustrated by the, the elder brother. His idea is the ones who keep the rules, they win. You see, guys, uh, on the outside, the elder brother did all the things a good son is supposed to do. He did his duty. He obeyed the rules. He, uh, he worked very hard every day. He was obedient, or so he thought, to the father. And in his mind... Surely, if anyone deserved a fattened calf, it was he. The the outsides of this guy are fine, and, and, and nobody denied that. It was his insides that stink. You know, guys, um, we live in a place called the Bible Belt. And um, the Bible Belt is full of folks just like the elder brother. And you know, I can prove that. You know, that great theologian and Bible scholar, Alan Jackson, he says so. Now, if you don't recognize the name Alan Jackson... His day job is that he's a country and western singer. And Alan Jackson had a song um, recently that was, that was pretty popular. Um, and the title of the song was, Where I Come From. And um, the, the story in the song is that the, the singer is a truck driver. And he's up doing his job in New Jersey, and he gets pulled over on the turnpike by a trooper. And the uh, trooper comes to the window and says, uh, buddy, you don't look like you're from around here. And then Alan Jackson says, where I come from, there's cornbread and chicken. 
Where I come from, a lot of front porch picking. Where I come from, people trying to make a living and working hard to get to heaven. He says that five times in that song. You know, guys, I'm not trying to be cute. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm simply saying that Alan Jackson has written a commentary about where we live. And I think he's pretty accurate. Where we come from, where we live, here in the Bible Belt, the idea that people have about how it is that they can be reconciled to God is that you work hard, keep the rules, don't disobey, you know, uh, work every day doing what you're supposed to do. Work hard. And you can get to heaven. So here's what you end up with, ladies and gentlemen. You end up with people who are lost. And yet they're still at home. People who are close. And yet they're very far away. People who are obedient and yet estranged from the Father. People who are religious. And lost. The elder brother obeys. But why? Why does he obey? You see, he assumes that as long as I perform well, then I can expect a ring and a robe and a, and a, and a fattened calf. And some of you think just like that. Gang, listen to me. This parable, or at least the second half of it, is a warning. It's a warning to good people. Like us. It's a warning, and the warning would be something like this. That nothing comes between you and God quicker than morality. Nothing comes between you and God quicker than decency and respectability. Now, guys, there is a tricky little balance that we have got to maintain here. We can't afford to slip too far in either direction, to the left or to the right. And let me... Try to explain what I mean. The elder brother glories in his moral cleanness. And in one way, it should be gloried in. It's a great thing to to keep soul and body unsullied by the kind of 
pollution that was experienced by the prodigal son. Holy living is the only path on which Christians should be found. God smiles over a holy life. It's a wonderful thing to to not be haunted by those shameful memories and, and bitter regrets that likely tortured the mind and the heart of the prodigal son for the rest of his life. But all of that so-called holy living, it begins to it begins to become dark and ugly. It, it, it's, it's nullified by the elder brother's consciousness and desire for merit. He was very impressed with his moral rectitude. His mind dwelt on his virtue. His tongue harped on it. And anybody who failed to recognize how clean he was filled him with a sense of indignation, resentment. And and, and no doubt he had a group of friends who who would gather and pat each other on the back about uh, all those horrible habits of those prodigal people that are so unclean. They would measure each other by how well they were doing and how they stacked up against each other. Guys, obedience and hard work is a good thing. It's even praiseworthy. But gang... If and when you begin to do those things with an idea that you're going to be applauded and it has merited somehow God's favor, then all of your hard work begins to smell. Because, ladies and gentlemen, sonship is not predicated on Hard work and obedience. Hard work and obedience are just the um, evidences of my sonship. You know, there's nothing worse than a beautiful woman or a handsome man who seems to know it. Know they're beautiful, know they're handsome. and, And to watch them strut over it. But in the same way, guys, um, a man's moral and spiritual externals can become positively disfiguring when he shouts about them from the rooftop and, uh, and wants people to know what a fine, upstanding person he is. And uh, what's worse is that they become a grounds for separation between you and God, and ultimately, you become an elder brother forever. Guys, I I don't know whether this will help. Um, As I said, it's a tricky little balance, and I hope you get it, but I I just want to read you two, two statements. One of these comes out of the mouth of Elihu in the book of Job, 
Remember, Elihu was the young one who apparently said some good things because he wasn't rebuked at the end of the book. This is in 35.7. And Elihu says, if you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Do you, do you get that, guys? I mean, our, our holy living earns us nothing before God. Um, morality and obedience is simply an expression of our love for a God who found a way to save people as wicked as we are. There's nothing meritorious about it. It doesn't earn you a ring and a robe and a fattened calf. Here's the other statement. This is in Psalm 16, verse 2. Just part of it, actually. It's one sentence, and it says, My goodness is nothing apart from you. You see, guys, my goodness viewed as anything other than the outworking of his grace in me is nothing. It's worse than nothing. It's positively disfiguring. It turns you into an elder brother. And you miss the party. You know that party where everybody in attendance is celebrating the extremes to which God has gone to save people? You missed that one. You know, guys, this story ends with, uh, with one son at home and the other son standing out in some field. Um, the one son who, who knew nothing of merit but knew only of grace Um, you find him residing in the house alongside his father um, and and the other who knew nothing of grace and only of merit. He stays in the faraway country in his smug self-satisfaction and sullen resentments and, and bewildered that the father throws parties for restored renegades. Because you see, the way he sees it, things just aren't supposed to work that way. In, um, in his estimation, God ought to be far more discriminating about who he lets into his family. So, in this parable, How many prodigal sons are there? There are two. There was a time when the younger son was was living in the faraway country and and, uh, the elder was at home, the elder brother was at home. In those days, the younger son was the prodigal. But, But then there came a time when the younger son was in the father's arms. He was the the center of all the festivity and the rejoicing while his older brother is sulking out in the field somewhere. He was angry, the text says, and would not go in. 
And at that stage, ladies and gentlemen, at that stage in the story, that elder brother, he's the prodigal. The difference between those two boys is that the younger son renounced his prodigality and returned to the father's house. But there is no record in this parable that the elder son ever came home. The curtain falls on this parable with the younger son in the father's house and the elder boy in a faraway country of his own. You know, guys, there are distances that simply cannot be measured in miles and, and, and feet. I, I don't know how far it was from the father's house to that faraway country where the, the younger boy uh, spent his rebellious days feeding pigs. I only know this, that it wasn't anywhere close to as far away from the father as that chilly and that gloomy country to which the elder brother went. You know, I, I don't think you can read this parable without feeling some bit of sadness about the older brother and the one who um, thought that he deserved something from the father, um, the one who, you know, stayed at home while his brother had taken that, that rebellious journey into the faraway country. There's, there's, there's just a twinge of sadness when you look at this other boy and you realize he was so close. But he was so far away. Maybe like some of you. Uh, we'll return when I get back um, and take a further look at the elder brother in a couple of weeks. But tell me this, just, just based on, on what you know now, um, would you say that the pews of the churches that dot the Bible Belt, are they more frequented by prodigal son types or elder brother types? I guess more personally. Which brand of those two boys are you? What, you, you, um, you've never viewed yourself as a prodigal? Because we're all prodigals. We are all prodigals for whom the Father has gone to extremes to restore. The father had to go out and get all of us.
you see, the hardest one to get to come home was the one who was so close to home. Guys, unlike a fairy tale, this parable provides no happy ending. The, the story ends with uh, the elder brother standing smugly out in the field. Does he ever? Does he ever come in? I don't know. What I want you to ask or answer is Will you ever come in? Our Father, we love your word. Only, only the, the divine could tell a story like this. Only someone who was a genius could make up a story so poignant, so biting, so, so alert, so descriptive. And I pray, Father, that, um, that I have not in any way muddied its message, but that it might, the message of this parable might be seen in all of its, in all of its beauty, a beauty that is designed to see prodigal sons come home and elder brothers come in. Lord, though there's not a whole lot of prodigal sons uh, that we would admit to being, there are a whole lot of elder brothers that, um, that seem to come into churches all across this country, but particularly the Bible Belt. If you have brought any such into this worship service, would you use your word to, um, to illumine what the true status of each of our souls is such that we can turn from our pursuit of merit and embrace the one who is altogether lovely, the only one with any merit, Jesus Christ. Do that, Father. Um, expand the kingdom by drawing men and women into it even now. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.